Hi everybody, my name is Maria Villablanca and welcome back to Transform Talks. Our guest this week is Julie Lasso. Julie is one of the best supply chain strategists out there with 17 years of experience in bringing private brands to retail for one of the biggest retailers in the US, Target. Since her time at Target, she has founded her own successful consultancy firm where she continues to elevate private label partnerships in the retail space, responsible for billions in brand launches. Julie deeply understands managing relationships and providing fluid solutions between suppliers and retailers at scale. But Julie is also a future-focused leader in sustainable and circular systems, proving that these concepts are crucial to business growth and not just buzzwords for companies to appear more eco-friendly. Well, we're going to discuss all this and much more today on Transform Talks. Hi, Julie. Welcome to Transform Talks. Thank you for being here. Maria, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Tell us what you've been up to and uh, we'll kick off. I'd be happy to. I am US-based and I grew up professionally at Target stores. So I worked there for about 17 years in a combination of merchant, merchant adjacent roles. And about five years ago, I launched my own consulting business. And what I've stayed mostly focused on is supporting retailers and building amazing partnerships with their suppliers, with a very specific focus on supporting retailers and their supplier partners as they're building out and executing more sustainable strategies in the production and then ultimately supporting the consumption of those consumer goods by their customers. It's important work, you know, and, and I think everybody that I speak with outside of the supply chain industry, uh, because I think within the supply chain industry, we've all known that supply chain is an important thing for some time, but it's become a mainstream topic. And, and just today, actually talking to my team when I was, especially a bunch of new people that I've got on my team, I was explaining what is a supply chain. And I thought, you know what, the best way to say this is you don't know what a supply chain is because it works when it breaks you know what a supply chain is. So maybe let's start with talking a little bit about the past, uh, prior to the pandemic, you know, the world way back then, way, it feels like a million years ago, but way back then, what in your mind was important then in terms of supplier relationship management? In my mind, what was important and, and continues to be important, even in the, the pandemic response world that we're all living in, is finding the right partners to bring your vision to life. And I've worked with several different retailers, both in my career in corporate, but also down in the consulting space where I see a bit of a pendulum that those partnerships in some cases were taken for granted, where retailers were starting to leverage a lot of power. They either weren't communicating as directly and openly as they could, or they were being very directive in that communication and looking for the lowest price, the fastest time, and not really bringing their partners along with the vision of where they wanted their organizations to go. And sometimes that was a lack of having that vision themselves. And sometimes it was the idea of more holding an idea close to the vest as a trade secret and not really building the partnerships where you would engage in that kind of trusted, open conversation about how to grow your businesses together. I, th I think, you know, what, what you said there is uh, very true and I think it exists. There are bad relationships, good relationships across the board with suppliers here. But I think a lot of the decisions hopefully maybe only in the past, were financially driven, weren't they? Let's try to get as much out of our suppliers as we possibly can for the cheapest amount of money. 
right? There's so much to fund, whether it's shipping next day or launching it online or a media platform. Retailers had a lot of places where money needed to be spent. And often on the, the supply side, that's where you saw the squeeze and some of that brittleness start to come in, which I'm sure we'll be talking about in a moment that as we navigated through COVID, that started to bring up quite a bit of challenge and, and problems within those supply chains. Well, not just COVID, but I think as we drive towards more supplier uh, tr supply chain transparency and uh, building more resilience, we're going to need our partners a lot more. So maybe if I ask you, what do you think a good relationship looks like? Because you've sort of alluded to it, but uh, what are the benefits of actually investing resources into fostering good supplier relationships? I'll start with the idea of a good relationship is based on that open and transparent conversation. What are the, the strategies? What is the vision for the business that a retailer is seeking to achieve? But also trying to understand where that supplier partner is going and how those visions align and how you can support each other's efforts and growth. That's the fundamental place to start. And then certainly aligning the way that you work together. So some of that's the less sexy and innovative ideas of building out a process for reviewing those strategies, building products, bringing products to market and keeping customers satisfied. Where are the touch points where you need to be communicating and working together in a very clear and open way so that you're bringing the results that you're excited about. And then you're also measuring those results and reacting where, and as you get feedback in the, the form of sales or other key metrics that you're managing. Okay. And how possible is that? Or how difficult is it for the likes of some of the people that are listening here who are from multinational organizations who might have tens of thousands of suppliers? Well, when you reach a magnitude of tens of thousands of suppliers, that absolutely becomes a challenge. And then you do need to shift to fit how that communication and openness does get, does get translated. I would say that you've got to, to shift how that strategy is shared out. You are doing more one-to-many relationships, certainly in communication, but then you need to tier and, and focus on the, the connections that are driving the largest impact for your business, or alternatively, hold the most risk for your business that are essential to get right day in and day out in order to be able to deliver on the commitments that are most important to you and your customers. But you will need to tier and prioritize if and as you scale into massive numbers like what you outlined. Yeah, I, I agree. I think so. Let, let's talk about the last couple of years uh, because it's certainly been <laughs> different, hasn't it? So what, what do you think has been your biggest learnings or the people you work with? What, what, what lessons can we take from there? I think the idea that we needed to move away from a very lean grounded methodology of getting the most productivity, the most streamlined approach of being the gold standard. I think in supply chain, there's always been a nature of risk management. So I don't think that this is a completely new skill to build, to think through how do we mitigate risk? How do we think of our backups and alternatives? But I think that the optimum was this really hard structure where we knew exactly what we were going to do next. And that was success. So stepping away from that and thinking about the more flexible spaces that we could build out our supply chain. So sometimes that's where the partners are that we are working with. It's certainly in how products are designed, how they are sourced and shipped and, and transported to the customers. Every point in that supply chain needs to have a little bit more give. And the, the clients that I work with are much more open to that now than they would have been in the past when it felt like more of a, a right answer that everyone was looking for. And that's both unrealistic 
and I think limiting in, in looking at the full scope of, of what and how you ultimately deliver on what's most important to your organization. But is it sustainable? I mean, do you think we are operating in a sort of crisis mode and then we're going to go back to quote unquote normal? Or do you think these new practices are sustainable? The sense I get is that we've shifted out of a true crisis in the sense of it's something that caught us off guard and we need to resolve it immediately. I think the shift is now more to this uh, and, and it is a new, a newer maybe state, not so much a, a normalness, but a state of anticipation, a state, a state of reflection and adjustments. And, and I do think that realistically, we are going to have to live in this space going forward where we can't just set a plan in motion and then check in in three months to make sure it's doing what we need to. We need to build our plan, think through our options, and then as the plan is unfurled, what are those points along the way that we're checking for for pressure leaks and backup and in and, and places where the cracks might start to show? You know, I want to talk about supplier relationship management as a people thing, as a cultural thing versus the technology side of things. It seems like all the conversations around supply chain these days is around new kit, new technology, the shiny new object syndrome. And you don't really talk a lot about, or one doesn't really hear a lot about the nuts and bolts of what makes supply chain work, uh, including procurement, sourcing, the whole supplier relationship management angle. Do you think that the person running supplier relationship management has more sway in a business than they did back before the pandemic? In other words, are we getting more influence over the whole end-to-end supply chain? Yeah, I love the the conclusion that's built a little bit into your question, Maria, because I do think it's absolutely true that the teams that are managing those supplier partnerships are given new support within the organization. It's not just that supply chain itself is, is sexy, but it's when that sourcing manager is coming back to the organization and being able to articulate, this is the matrix that I believe in. This is the matrix that's going to deliver on X, Y, and Z. Because of the shift that we've seen where even internally now, more strategies are being shared across the merchant and the design team and positioning that sourcing team to be able to be an advocate. And when they build out the relationships and they truly build out that partnership as part of supplier relationship management, they're doing it with a much more informed perspective. So that the matrix that comes back and the relationships that are developed are much stronger and much deeper. And if you have 10,000 suppliers, it doesn't go down to every single supplier, certainly, but that, that sourcing team knows who to focus on now because they're much more connected with the impact that, that they ultimately are, are advocating for on behalf of the whole cross-functional team that's working together in this product space. Well, they're just strengthening the supply chain, aren't they? I mean, at the end of the day, which is strengthening the business. The sourcing team, how attuned do they have to be to geopolitical issues these days? Oh, incredibly. I've, I've heard you talk throughout the year on the uh, anticipated and now the reactionary impact of the situation in Ukraine. The fact that China has a very different COVID response than many other nations in the world and staying very close to where and how those cultural shifts are happening, especially if you have second or third or even fourth tier suppliers originating either products, goods, or even services to some extent uh, from those spaces of impact, you've got to know where and how the world is changing and how that is going to impact the, the space that you're operating in. It's a different space, isn't it? I mean, right now we're having to look at diminishing, uh, you know, source of goods. Uh, we're having to look at different types of foe or friend with regards to countries, governmental issues. Uh, there really is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite dangerous out there in terms of uh, sourcing goods. We don't know 
what we're going to be doing. But do you think that there is an argument for dual sourcing or single sourcing? What's your take on that? It's a little bit of an, it depends. And I, I certainly don't mean to dodge the question, but I think there's absolute value in dual vetting at a very minimum. When you are building out a new product assortment or bringing something to market for the first time, you need to strike the balance of ensuring that you've got at least multiple resources or perspectives that are external to your organization that are helping to validate some of the assumptions that, assumptions that you are making about the products that you're bringing to life. From a dual sourcing perspective, that introduces a lot of complexity, but it also introduces some of the flexibility and the give and some resiliency in the supply chain that we talked about just a little bit ago. So for some businesses, that is absolutely the right answer, but it also comes with some certainly give and take like business decisions are want to do, right? If you're splitting your business between two suppliers, you are by definition then having less of an impact on those suppliers that you're partnering with. And if one supplier completely goes down and you have 50% of your supply, fantastic. If you're able to build up a certain amount, fantastic. But if that one supplier can do all of your business, there probably were certain level of efficiencies and certain level of deeper commitment that you would have been able to secure with them if they had had your business from the very beginning. So it's a tricky one, I would say, uh, but certainly the geopolitical nature, the materials that you're working with and their availability would also be things that I would take into consideration if I was building that type of a strategy with a partner. Well, sh- shipping costs as well. I mean, we're talking about the increase in shipping costs are in exactly are enormous. So do you think we're going to see a shift to more nearshoring, to more uh, shorter supply chains? Maybe if you think about mitigating the, the risk with regards to transportation costs increasing, maybe going back to labor markets that are higher cost, like the U.S. or Europe. Do you think that that's something that's uh, going to be on the cards? I think we're seeing that already. Some of the reports out of in the U.S. show that manufacturing levels are at their highest rate in decades and a capital investment. I'm going to get the number wrong, but it was it was more than 10x in this first quarter in the US or the first two quarters in the US than it was in the last handful of years, I want to say. It was a stunning number of how much investment is going into building those supply spaces that are are near to the US. And it's not fully integrated. So there's still components, there's still a supply chain that reaches outside of the US, but it's clear that organizations are looking for the places that they need to build in a little bit more flex and, and some more resiliency. And so, yes, bringing pieces of the, of the manufacturing back to the U.S. absolutely makes sense, or North America more broadly. Uh, and when you look at labor and the costs of labor, what I think is interesting about the equation this time around, as compared to decades ago when you looked at some of the peak of the manufacturing in the U.S., is that employees are being asked to do different things. And certainly to the scale, they're doing a different amount of work. So you aren't paying minimum wage to hundreds and hundreds of employees. You are now having a select higher skilled labor force that's doing less because whether production is automated or it is streamlined, you don't need that sheer human power to function in a manufacturing space in a different way. So the opportunity to build from the ground up, build new facilities, is I think positioning manufacturers and brand builders in a way to to do it, I would say right-sized for what the economy is looking to do. Because with the employment rates, the way that they are throughout the world, but certainly I have closer line of sight to it in the US, you aren't going to be able to build a factory with thousands of people who are excited to have that job. But if you have a high-skilled job with the potential to grow, 
that's a place where there's a lot of enthusiasm and still some space to grow within the, the market. Let's shift now to sustainability and to the conversation around circularity. Uh, I got asked a question yesterday, which was what has shifted or what, what do you think has changed? This is the question to me, which I'm now going to ask you. What do you think has changed with regards to this conversation in the last year and how will it change next year? I love that question. And I think as someone who's been passionate about sustainability and specifically circularity since I stepped out and launched my own consulting business, I wanted to find a way for retailers and brand builders to partner with their suppliers and build product and have a better impact on the communities that they sell product in, the communities that produce their products. And circularity for me has been an exciting way to do that in the sense that I think it can bring everyone to the table and give them a space to work in. But I was still hearing a lot of pushback of the retailers don't own this, our supply chains are too long, they're too complex. What does it mean to be really circular? So there's still some hesitancy, I would say, even heading into COVID. But traction was beginning to build. You were starting to hear messaging that was getting past just greenwashing, actionable goals, science-based goals were starting to, to build. And I certainly, as we were navigating COVID, had in the back of my mind, what's going to happen to this momentum? When people have everything to care about, simple survival, when we didn't know what COVID would do to us, what we didn't know what it would do to the economy or anything else, would people really care about broader and more esoteric ideas of sustainability? And what's been very interesting to see is that the behaviors that started to shift in COVID when it comes to consumers' behaviors continue to reinforce that sustainability was a priority, not just at a big picture level, but more of a very personal values-based level that's coming uh, through generationally, but it's also coming through that very near proximity that consumers had with their homes as people transition to more and more working from our homes or transitioning living spaces into working spaces, cleaning out their closets, getting you know, doing their thread up bags for the first time. Behaviors really started to shift and I think as the, the either want to say the dust has settled, that rubber band effect that people were expecting that we would snap back to all pre-COVID behaviors. In sustainability, we not only did we not lose traction and the importance of that from the customer base, but we started to see building momentum. And I would say from a year ago, that momentum has continued to build. Consumer behavior has continued to stay in a more sustainably centric space. And people are now shopping and, and putting their money where their mouth is in terms of supporting brands that resonate. So it's a long answer to a, a fairly direct question, but I would say that I don't see the momentum slowing. And as I look to future years, you're now seeing, in addition to that consumer-driven space that's very motivating to brands and retailers, uh, you're also seeing more policy shifts and governmental and regulation regulatory support that's also starting to at help leapfrog and push and shift just from a momentum space into true action and impact space. And do you think, you know, this is something that also bugs me a little bit about ESG. There's such a focus on carbon footprints and set, you know, offsetting carbon that we're not really looking at all the other elements of uh, creating a sustainable future in supply chain. Um, do you think that perhaps there's that danger of greenwashing and, and fixation on carbon, which again, I'm not saying is bad. We want to focus on carbon as well, but we also want to focus on creating more sustainable business models and equity and diversity within the supply chain and something that's fair. And just what are your thoughts on that? 
because uh, I could talk about this for a while, but go, what are your thoughts on it? I, yes, I, I think we could fill probably a good 90 minutes, which would not uh, serve your audience probably uh, in the long run. But I, I completely agree that there's a risk of, of greenwashing and talking about sustainability metrics like carbon footprints because they don't translate an impact in a way that's, that's motivating at the customer level. Or even if you think about the teams that are impacted, who really understands a carbon footprint Broadly speaking, it has to be a very small percentage of the population. And not to say you can't be educated. And I think initiatives like uh, a sustainability label, similar to a food label, we're starting to see that much more uh, in Europe and the UK. The US is a, a bit behind on that idea. So it's not to say that we can't educate to get to push through greenwashing, but it's still in some ways fairly esoteric. And I think if you can manage and communicate with more impact, that's where you're seeing the brands that can truly resonate with the customer. So whether that's a give back program, buy one, give one, uh, on, on, the, on more of the broader uh, notions of, of ESG, when you're actually thinking about the, the communities that you're impacting. Um, if it's regenerative, that's also starting to be uh, well understood that you're actually leaving a space better than when you found it. In, in, the, in the food space, that's becoming very apparent, but also natural fibers and, and cotton. That's a really great example. So regenerative, something's 100% regenerative. Uh, that helps water usage management. Those are the, the measurements that start to, I think, impact and resonate better when it comes to sustainability. Carbon footprint is important. Don't get me wrong. I completely agree with your assessment. That's important, but it's, it's not compelling in the same way. And you can, you can do a lot to manipulate what and how you talk about your carbon footprint and what you which you offset, which can disguise a truly sustainable business model or having a truly positive impact. But it's, it's true. I think you, you can bamboozle your audience by saying that, oh, we've offset carbon footprints, but yet at the same time, we're leaving things worse than we, than we, you know, we started with. I think I like that. I like what you've said there. I think leaving that, trying to leave someplace better than when, how it began with regards to sourcing materials. I, I, I really think that's a good idea. I say, and that's that's true of more than just the environment. That that also to the, to the broader point you were making about social, it it does involve the the communities as well. And and are you are you partnering and looking at the communities that your products are both sold in, uh, as well as produced in? And, and what and how are you able to show up better in that space? Uh, understanding that that's second, third, fourth tier of of production and partnerships at times. So it's not easy work, but it's but it's important work. Yeah, completely agree. So let's talk about the future. Um, what, I mean, we're getting now to the stage in the year where we're starting to talk about what is next year about, you know, I, I, I still can't believe that, but uh, predictions and not that I'm going to hold a, uh, you know, ask you to hold a crystal ball and I'm not going to come back and haunt you if you get it wrong, but where, what do you think broadly we're going to be talking about in 2023 and beyond? Do you think the sustainability question is going to be bigger? Do you think geopolitical issues will be bigger? Do you think we'll be talking about a different business model with uh, sourcing? All of the above. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Yes, yes, yes. I think uh, geopolitical will uh, impacts will continue to dominate. I don't think we are have seen the uh, a decrease in the impact with Russia and Ukraine yet, especially the impact to Europe and making it through the winter uh, from an energy perspective. It, it sounds like most of the positioning will will get the get the nations through maybe by by hook or by crook or by just the 
the very tips of their fingernails, you know, pick your euphemism. Um, but I, I think energy uh, as, a, as an offshoot of, of geopolitical instability will be incredibly important. But some of the early conversations that I'm hearing now really see this as a, a very key moment where we're shifting into a more sustainable, renewable space. And it's going to be painful and it'll be a couple of years before that lands. But I think the, the energy approach, the energy policies and strategies within Europe are going to look fairly different uh, within the next couple of years. And a lot of that conversation and the groundwork will be laid in the, in the coming three, six, eight months. And I think from a sustainability perspective, there is now a greater connectedness that some of these geopolitical incidents and, and COVID have, have really brought to the forefront. So when we look at solutions and we look at paths forward, whether that's working in the regulatory space or consumer-driven demands, there's more connectedness now. And that's something I'm really excited about because you there's only so much you can do within your, your own four square feet of space. But there's so much more we can do together. And if we're more easily able to trans or communicate priorities to that and partnerships around that and impact, then I think you start to see some really groundswell uh, type type movements. And that's that's what I'm excited to see uh, as, as you think about really impactful sustainability work. Julie, that's all the time that we have. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. And like you said, I mean, we could continue talking about this for some time, so I'm sure we'll talk again. Uh, but thanks so much for being on Transform Talks. Oh, I so appreciate it, Maria. And I look forward to the opportunity to chat again. Thank you. For those listening at home, we'll catch you again next time.